episode 123 of the Winner 6 podcast, official podcast of BehindTheBookPass.com. I'm your host, site expert, Adam McGee, and joining me this time out is contributor on site, Jordan Tresky. Hello, welcome back, Jordan. This is like, this has been our hiatus. We took an extra two days, and I was only thinking this earlier, that probably makes it our longest break without a podcast in a long, long time. I can't think of us missing weeks. We've always found a way, even when it was difficult, to not miss weeks. So this is probably the longest break without winning six in a long, long time. Hello. And yes, maybe uh, definitely, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> but definitely our mo- like the intentional break. If we miss one, it's just because someone may have gotten sick. Or... I don't even think we always found a way. We always found a way. There'd always be some sort of oddball lineup we'd come up with out of nowhere to just, you know, put it all back together. So, I don't know. Maybe I think we might have taken a week off at the end of last season, too. Maybe. But then again, I, uh, I don't know. Maybe it was that, Maybe that was two seasons ago. Wait, the podcast didn't exist then. We're coming, uh-huh. up, on, coming up on two seasons since it started. Anyway, we're getting sidetracked that we've only just begun. Yes. To live. Seen as you had to go the, the best part of nine days without an episode of Win Six. It's probably best that we briefly touch on some of the stuff that's happened in the time since. The last time you heard from me, it was Ty who was with me on the previous episode of Win and Six, where we reacted immediately after that epic game six loss to the Raptors. In the time that has passed since then, how do you feel about that series? How do you feel about the playoffs? How do you feel about the season? Is there anything that changes for you after the kind of cooling down period we've had? Or are you as happy? Maybe, I don't know, maybe you're unhappy. But are you as happy or unhappy as you were when game six ended or has something changed over the last week or so as you have time to digest well i took a, a little bit of a ram springer that is um that's like the amish thing i think i brought that up before anyway you did you definitely brought that up before yeah. ram springer is one of my touchstones so after my ram springer uh i was thinking about the snake because we're recording this on the day the raptors got swept by the Cavaliers uh, unceremoniously. And I was thinking, you think of how their season ended, obviously 
we're talking about two different teams or two teams on totally different timelines. They beat the Bucks because I kept seeing this like thing about like, oh, why can't we have the Bucks play the Cavaliers instead of and, like Bill Simmons? Well, I, it wasn't just Bill Simmons. I saw a few other people uh, float that idea out, and I was like, oh, that makes sense. But then at the at the same time, I would think like they Bucks probably probably they would have gotten swept by the Cavaliers too, but it would just have like a, a feeling of like. They broke through. They broke through, and obviously the play discount the playoff series drought, but it's a totally different way where you look at like the Raptors who, you know, just get by the uh, the Bucks in the first round series and just get you know wiped <laughs> off the floor by the Cavaliers basically in their series with them. But you think like a team like the Bucks who, you know, they're still selling this hope even though they st- <laughs> they technically lost in six and they lost three straight games in this kind of I wouldn't say weird way but it's it's an unusual way to kind of not melt down but to have the series turn against their favor but anyway that was not the question that you asked at all I was just no, thinking. But that does kind of tie into it that is interesting I, I think on that that well, it is amazing to think that <laughs> We take an extra couple of days off. We're just over a week. And in that time, the last podcast we did, the Raptors had just moved into the first round. <laughs> and we're now recording about an hour after they've just been eliminated from the second round and just like that. But I think the interesting thing in terms of the place on that and going kind of, well, how would the books have done? Or wouldn't it have been better if the books got there? I mean, even if they were swept. The thing is, if the books had got through to the second round and they've been swept what books fans would have said to take solace in it was oh well you know they've been there now now they know next year when they play the Cavs and LeBron they know where they went wrong they know how to adjust the funny thing with that is the Raptors are an example of the team who had been there and they actually regressed if we're just going to in a very kind of base way look at well they went six games last year and they lost in four games this year in spite of improving their roster. So I think, to be perfectly honest, the Cavs are playing like some sort of group of aliens right now. What them and the Warriors are doing is just, it's a completely different sport to the other 28 teams in this league. They're on an entirely different plane. Uh, personally, I'm enjoying watching the Cavs more than anyone else in these playoffs. They're the only team that I I make sure I'm seeing every game live. The books just aren't ready for them. The books wouldn't have been ready. We could have said, you know, they'll gain this, they'll gain that. No, no, they wouldn't. I think they they gained the playoff experience. That was something generally that needs to be picked up. I think mm, it wouldn't have ended well. Didn't end well for the Raptors. We'll talk, there's some questions in the mailbag, so we'll talk a little bit more about that on, on that later, but I don't really get that whole thing, because really, I fully expect the Cavs to sweep in the conference finals and move through to the finals without having dropped the game. I think if anything has been established, it's like, oh, okay, uh, there is the Eastern Conference, and then there's the Cleveland Cavaliers. It's not a real competition at the moment. That team is so, so good. They're scary the way their new additions have meshed in. So, yeah, a little bit of a side note you brought us on there, a little bit of a detour, but really it is tied into 
obviously how a lot of Bucks fans have felt when they've watched this Raptors team get absolutely torn apart by the Cavs. And I don't even feel like the Cavs played all that great in this series. And they just kind of cruised through. Yeah, they they were bru- cruising for a bruising. And they, they got that bruise. That's a office uh, reference. But I was just thinking about this. Again, this is going to be sidetracked. But I'm not, I've long been a believer of, I don't really, I'm not like a guy that searches for teams with stars. I don't, I don't really understand why that brings people in. I understand, well, I understand why that brings people in and all that. But, uh, I just, I just, I don't know. There's something about it that I, I rather root for a team. I, there's something more for me, at least. There's, it just makes more sense for me to watch a team grow and all that stuff. Uh, but when you watch LeBron at this point in his career, just see him like in control of every aspect of the game, every time, like minute that he's on the floor, and it's just so steady. Uh, it's very. It's just a joy to watch, obviously. And two, I think the other thing about seeing LeBron at this point is that you, you know, we we see the archetype for Giannis in the years to come, and you can kind of see like if he can just like if this is Giannis age thirty two, ten years from now, what would that look like? You know what I mean? I know that's that's a little bit no, of a stretch. No, that's I I get that. I think maybe that's a that's the kind of interesting topic that maybe we could devote a whole podcast to later in the summer of this idea of uh, LeBron as a kind of archetype that we'd hope Giannis can can take the example of and, and follow in his footsteps. I think, though, something that for me is fascinating with LeBron is still, and it maybe more so than ever, just how much better he makes everyone around him play. As you watch, say, Kyle Korver's second quarter in Game 4, I mean, how do you how do you stop that? That's that's not you're not having LeBron beat you technically, even though he is doing a lot to create those opportunities. That's the one issue I have with comparing Giannis and LeBron. The Cavs at this point have got a lot of special stuff going on that kind of extends beyond what LeBron James brings to them, and that's something that the books just can't replicate very easily, particularly. The likes of Kyle Korver are getting a Darren Williams who, okay, he's past his prime, but he's still a very good, effective Darren Williams to come in and give you the kind of contributions he's been giving. That isn't something I can imagine the books getting all too easily very soon. And it's not just, you know, the books, it's not just because it's Milwaukee. Traditionally, NBA teams just don't get that. There's, there's something very rare and special the Cavaliers have got going. The Warriors have got going in an attempt, I guess, to kind of battle them out in this arms race. And this is a very unique version of the NBA. So it's not as easy as when people say, just, you know, surround the Anna, or surround the Anna with shooters at all times. Just like LeBron. Good luck finding the shooters that will take that kind of money to come and play there. You have to go and do what LeBron did, which is get to the finals get to the conference finals, and lose on your own before other people are prepared to buy in in some form. You can start to build those teams. So we're still quite a bit away from that kind of juncture. I guess to direct it back to slightly where we intended to start, your feelings on the season overall, are they positive? 
Are they more positive, less positive than they would have been in the immediate aftermath of it ending? How has time helped you to process what was a pretty crazy season? Um, I would say it's probably the same as it was uh, the night of the the epic comeback. The the, the comeback that only Steven Spielberg or not, not the HBO miniseries the night of you were Oh or the comeback starring Lisa Kudrow. Uh <laughs> sorry. <laughs> but uh I obviously I've said this many times and I'm not the only one that has said this since this time or after. But uh I did not expect the Bucks to make the playoffs whatsoever. Uh, there was multiple times during that was before the season, uh, January fifteenth to February, I don't know twenty first. That was just random dates that I just picked up, but that would be uh, sounds about right though. Yeah, exactly. I I did not think they would make the playoffs at that point either, but uh, when there's a will, there's a way, as they say, and. The Bucks willed themselves to the playoffs. I, sorry, that was a horrible way to take that back. But, uh, yeah, I, I just it was a season where I didn't have many expectations or high expectations, and they, I, <laughs> even when I started to doubt them during the season, they blew past that. It's just, I don't know. It's one of those seasons where. I think I said this on the night of after the game or maybe during the game, <laughs> just the, just how it was going. But I was like, we won't like there's going to be a lot of things that we won't understand about the season when we think about it in the years to come. But the biggest takeaway is just, you know, the fact that Giannis is where we know him now. And that's all that really matters, frankly. So, uh, but yeah, I'm I'm definitely the same where I was before. That was, you know, um Cloud nine. To touch on some of the other things that have happened between the end of the season and our recording today. Some of it will probably end up getting into more detail in future podcasts. But we had exit interviews. You might remember last year we did a full podcast breaking down exit interviews, I'm pretty sure. This year, uh, that would have been a very short podcast because we only had... Seven books, I feel like, show up for exit interview availability. Um, On that day itself, we got no Jason Kidd. We got no John Hammond. We would later get him Um, on Thursday. He did his first interview since the end of the season. Not hearing from Yanis, Jabari, Chris, Greg Monroe, Jason Terry, Michael Beasley, Jason Kidd. That made it very difficult to really kind of, I don't know, pull something from the whole end of season experience. For me, it was a little disappointing. But hey, these things happen. Those guys play their hearts out, had their own individual reasons, I guess, for not doing that. Um, Chris Middleton, for example, as we know, was completely unable to speak, so he wouldn't have been doing it anyway. Of those kind of exit interviews, that I guess the one person who did speak who we would really have been looking to to take something kind of immediate in terms of how it's going to affect the books this summer from was Tony Snell. Tony Snell does not give much away, Jordan. 
a Tony Snell interview does not give you much. Tony Snell basically just repeated it. I'm going to go to my family and we're just going to talk. He didn't really even specify what they were going to talk about. He is not worried about his free agency until that comes along. Um, but what he lacks in actual details, uh, fodder for podcast people like ourselves, he makes up for it with the highest uh, or the highest amount of eye contact available in interviews. The man cannot stop with yeah. the eye. He's very very genuine. He's not going to say yes. much, but what he says is going to. You're going to feel it. It's going to hit you in the heart. It's going to hit you in the mind. Tony Snell is going to tell you some truth. Not a lot of detail, though. So we're really, we're waiting on that one still. When John Hammond did speak, almost a week later, six days later, um, he spoke before the book's first draft workout. Which, how about that? They started two weeks earlier this year, mainly with the aim of Filling out a D-League roster is going to be a big part of it too. So they're looking at more guys. But before before they kind of are on the day those workouts started, John Hammond spoke to the media and he gave a little bit more. He was definitive. You might remember, Jordan. Not the first time we've heard definitive John, John Hammond on what he wants to do in the summer. Much like 12 months ago when he wanted to bring Miles Plumley back and that was the plan. They want to bring Tony Snell back. That's... Facts. Cold hard facts. Greg Monroe's situation not quite as simple. All kind of power rests in Monroe's hands. John Hammond said, you know, we're not going to influence that kind of thing. Basically said the books are going to give Greg Monroe a space and when the time is right, Monroe can come talk to the books. They can figure it out. Um, Greg Monroe's agent, David Falk, was then quoted later in the week as saying he really respects the owners. has a great working relationship with with the books, he's excited to sit down with them and Monroe later in the summer and kind of see where they go from there. Which to me in itself, that was even a very positive kind of... that. That's more of a commitment from a player's agent than an agent as notable as David Falk as you'd expect in that kind of situation. So that, that was an interesting tidbit. And lastly, John Hammond was questioned on, you know, Jabari Parker, eligible for an extension this summer. What way do we see that? Is that a tough decision for you in terms of, you know, how he's going to bounce back from his injury, what you're really going to be paying the money or offering this money for? And it seems very simply the answer was no, that's not a difficult decision. Do you think that the books are going to extend Jabari this summer? Because John Hammond definitely didn't rule that out and if anything he spoke with so much enthusiasm that you'd feel that is at least something they're going to try to do this year uh i wouldn't be surprised um as anxious as that might make some bucks fans uh i mean there is a benefit to locking him up early obviously you can get him for a cheaper deal I mean, either way, he's going to be at a cheaper price than what it was uh, when we were talking about his extension, you know, six months ago, basically. Um, but obviously, there's a lot of risk involved. This is locking him up before, 
or if they were to do it this summer, it would be locking him up before he even get like. I mean, they they're targeting for his return for the All Star break, so I mean, we're far ahead from what he looks seeing what he looks like after uh, you know the second ACL tear. So, I, I mean, I, I don't know. What, I, what do you I, think I, it's, their options are here? Really, I, I think this is quite an interesting debate because. You know, lots of people have liked for quite a long time to say, oh, you know, the Bucks should trade Jabari and they throw this out there. Jabari's value is at rock bottom right now. And that's not even a reflection of his player, what he's shown this year, because his play this year would have had his value quite high, I'd guess. But the injury casts so much uncertainty. And when he's actually not locked up on his next deal either, that doesn't necessarily help. Although, of course, if the health issues don't pan out the right way, the books or any other team could be stung on a longer term deal. I just don't know what options the books have because they're good now. We've seen they're good without Jabari Parker. Got to imagine this is a playoff team next year. How are they getting a star? How how if if it's not if they can't trust and take the risk and just hope that it can still be Jabari Parker? How are they getting that other person? Everyone might scramble to say Ton, but I think with Yanis Ton, Chris say you're still going to be missing that something. That's something you miss in the playoffs, which is a kind of instant offense. I'm not sure any of those guys will ever have that. I think that's a really difficult consideration for the books. Is they have they have taken a jump down their I guess their timeline for where they want to be and they're now at a point where it's not easy they don't have cap space and they may have no cap space really for the foreseeable future oh. after this summer they're not going to have top draft picks how do they find their other star they kind of needed to be Jabari I think that forces their hand in a way yeah I totally agree I mean it's not just about stars or anything like that I think just adding I mean this is a question that they're facing this summer and every summer for like you said, for, for the foreseeable future and just adding pieces through other avenues, whether it's free agency, uh, the draft, uh, even trades. I mean, they don't have the greatest assets to, to move on from uh, at this moment. I mean, Let's be honest, that's they no, why they have no assets without giving up something that they need to keep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Or yeah. And that obviously goes for, you know, draft picks as well. So, uh, yeah, that's, I mean, that's what makes the whole Jabari, uh, extension you know, a little bit more complicated than it already is. It's they're They both need security for, you know, uh, obviously they both parties need, like if there's a give and take there, obviously, and just trying to figure that out, through you know all the the factors in play here, it's it's not it's not going to be easy at all. So I don't know. I I it's, it's I, I don't envy doing any side of that negotiation. It's a really tough summer for the books in terms of the decisions they have to make. It's a really really tough summer. It's much more difficult than last year, and we saw how last year posed its own problems. There is a kind of there's an element of thinking of, you know, is difficult a year like last year where you have the cap space and you have to make your decisions. 
It's even tougher when you don't really have all that much cap space and you're gonna get rid of the last drop you have for the foreseeable future. That's where we are this year. There is potential for all of this to go to the next level and be absolutely nailed on and really positive, or to go very badly. So there's a whole lot of decisions to have to manage carefully. And that's just not easy. There's no, like, I, I can't kind of hold anyone fully responsible and be like, well, you just, it's unacceptable to get any of them wrong. It will be incredibly costly, but these are difficult decisions coming up for the books. They're gonna have to have an element of luck to get a lot of them right. Moving on from all of that stuff. We're gonna continue some kind of retrospective on the season. We'll get on to, in the coming weeks, the free agency decisions, draft talk, all of that stuff is now going to really kick into gear for us. But I guess the main topic of conversation of this week's podcast we're going to start off looking through the books roster, looking back on how the different players play throughout the season, and we're going to do it position by position. That means this week we start off with point guard, or I guess as I'm going to put it, small guards, so just, just for the sake of convenience. And we're going to talk about Malcolm Brogdon, Matthew Davidova, and Jason Terry. We talked so much since the inception of this podcast about point guards. So having acquired all three guys that we're going to talk about this week, um, three guys who all played various kind of spells at the position, it was mostly split between Delhi and Brogdon, but Jason Terry did play some minutes there. How, how do you feel the books did with these kind of lead guard minutes? considering their own unique fits across the roster, everything we're going to look for. What do you think they got out of the point guard position this year? And what do they still need to find? Like, this may be the more pressing question. Uh, I think we've probably talked about this before, you know, mid-season. But uh, I think just the biggest takeaway for me is just stability. Uh, moving on from how last year's point guard uh, group was, I mean, led by MCW. Uh, you know, I, I I don't think I need to explain further <laughs> why I think they uh, the stability that you know Delhi Brogdon and Terry uh, that was just such a key for the Bucks um, in more ways than one. Uh, so I think that's definitely the biggest positive. I mean, you know, they all have you know various flaws. To their game at this point and you know a guy like Delhi, who probably the most I wouldn't say polarizing uh, that would probably be too generous the, probably the most hated or uh, criticized criticized no, maybe no that's Mirza I there's a difference with Delhi though I, I feel well I think the biases ran deeper with Delhi from before he actually suited up for the books yeah people kind of feel like Certain people would feel like they've been proven right, even though I wouldn't necessarily agree with that, with what's been seen from Delhi, where Toledovich maybe there's a different kind of anger, maybe stronger in some ways, because the book signed the guy who just set the NBA record for most three-pointers off the bench in the season, and then he didn't make a whole lot of trees. Yeah. But both of those guys kind of feel, I'll, I'll let you have 
Delhi as a polarizing or highly disliked figure in the books community. Thank you. And as a reward, I'm now going to eat a meat pie as I finish my answer. Uh, I will not pretend to eat a meat pie. I don't even know what they look like. Anyway, uh, so basically stability for me, just having a baseline of production. Uh, it, I mean, that positive production, obviously, you could there, there could be negative production. There could be a lot of turnovers in the CW. Uh, but uh, just having that uh, kind of jump in play from the year before, I mean, that is... That was key for the Bucks at a position that, you know, <laughs> it's never been a it's been a sore spot for the Bucks for a very long time. Actually, throughout their history, really, when you think of best point guards on the for the Bucks, it's not like a flash in the pan, but it's something close. It's not it's it's very there's a lot of turnover. I have written that article multiple times. It will happen again later this summer. It is never enjoyable to do. No. Um like Sam Cassell was great for the books, but if you put Sam Cassell on the tier of best players ever to play for the books, he is not right up at the top, but he's one of the best point guards. Um, you look at post-prime Oscar Robertson coming in and kind of sealing the deal to win the championship. There's always been that element, though. I think it, that, that, that was kind of fitting right from the start, that they needed... They were already in a position. They had this great team. They had this star... And they needed to find a point guard to come in in the middle of the process and help them get over the edge. The parallels between where they are now and where they ultimately may be and that start is pretty obvious. I do agree. I think the the stability that they managed to get, not just in terms of on-the-court production, I think it gets a little undervalued. You can kind of, even with someone like Delhi. There are obvious things you can criticize. If we look at the mentality of, say, Delhi and Brogdon in particular, and compare their personalities, their attitudes to other point guards the books have had in recent years, literally every season in what could be described as recent years, these are completely different kinds of guys. And I think that worked for the most part. I think. The books were a calmer team in terms of the way the play was initiated from the point. Doesn't always mean like this is a separate issue to saying, oh well, when Delhi initiates the offense looks like this. That's not really what I'm saying. It's just you can kind of bring more order to things than with an MCW, than with a Brandon Knight or a Brandon Jennings. There's just a little bit more to it. Jared Bayless, all these kind of guys they had, they were all a very specific type that, dare I say, isn't exactly conductive to winning. Yeah. That will upset, yeah, I would agree that that. Will upset all of the Brandon Jennings and Brandon Knight fans out there, which is probably 90% of the fan base. But <laughs> I, I feel that's that's pretty true. So there was something important just about that kind of contribution that you got just the personality the way they conducted themselves on the floor let's get into some details specifically on the individuals let's start out with Malcolm Brogdon we talked when the draft happened we talked to the idea of 
Well, maybe Brogdon could play some point, and maybe he could be the kind of point guard the books are looking for. We definitely didn't envision him being able to do as much as he did straight away in his rookie season. What for you is the most important thing that Malcolm Brogdon brought to the table, though? And the, the one that you'd say not only kind of stands out from his rookie season, but could have a major role in whatever the books do in the coming years. Hmm. That's an interesting question. I don't know why it sounded like Adam West right there. Um, well, for, for starters, I mean, that Rookie of the Year trophy, that's going to be hanging on the mantle. Got June 26th. Hosted so? by Drake. Do you think so? Do you really think so? I, well, I was mostly doing that for fun. But... I know, but I'm now going to put you on the spot. Is the Rookie of the Year trophy going to come to Milwaukee? I I I was surprised to see how many people. I this doesn't really count for anything, but to see the people, uh, you know, respected writers, followers of the NBA, uh, to see them vote on Twitter, uh, Malcolm Brogdon for Rookie of the Year, and it kind of picked my. I, I definitely saw that, and I was like, hmm, that's that's a little interesting. Uh, so, you know, I, I want to say right now, I think he does win. I think he does. As, as crazy as I thought it would, that sounded, you know, mid-March, uh, I do think, I do think just the sake of how weird this rookie class is, it's, I can, I can see it. The only thing more surprising than Malcolm Brogdon love when the ballots were kind of being revealed by individuals as they as they voted, was the Joel Embiid love. To me, that is just kind of inexplicable. The 33 games, um, there's no doubt he's the best rookie. He had the best rookie season for the parts he was there, but it's not enough to technically qualify as the best rookie season. There may not be a qualifier on what it takes to win the award, but I think that's kind of pedantic when you look at to be an NBA leader in a certain stat, you have limits that you have to hit. There are minimum requirements. And on that kind of same measure, Embiid just wouldn't be in the mix. So I, I found that strange. The award is not best rookie, it's rookie of the year. But then I guess that falls into the best player, most valuable player debates too. So maybe just awards are broken and we'll have to see what happens. I think if when the full ballots are revealed and we see the final breakdown, I think it'll be close. It could be second place votes that do it. And the one thing I will say is Dario Saric seems to have got much less votes than I would have expected. Mm-hmm. So maybe second place votes get Malcolm Brogdon over. Who knows? Who knows what the the electoral college might have in store, Jordan? Call back. Um, what was the original question? The what's the element that I guess impressed you the most, or you'd feel could be most important to the books longer term from what we saw from Brogdon this year? Oh. 
I don't know. I, there's just something about I, I. I can't like put one thing specifically just because he is a, you know, an all-around player. Uh, really, he's. I don't think there is. He has like this one specific uh, trait that stands out more than others. I think he's kind of a uh, jack of all trades, master of none type it's player. Not your answer, though, that he's. Just how I guess that is. I guess it is my answer. That is, you know what? You cracked the code, Da Vinci. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that is my answer. He is a jack of all trades, master of none. And the fact that we're talking about this after a rookie season, again, he's not an ordinary rookie. He's the oldest rookie in this class, right? Why they forget? That's right, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, so we're, there's a different – he's on a different level compared to other guys. But we're talking about this after a rookie season, and who knows, as we talked about, possible rookie of the year winner. Uh, you know, that's not for nothing at all. Uh, that does, That's not happening every day. Um, and sure, it's a different – we're not talking about a Carl Anthony Towns type player or like this, you know – impressive player, but having a great role player like Brogdon has already become in, you know, his first season in the NBA. Uh, I think that's, that's obviously to the Bucks benefit. And, you know, it shows why you don't trade second round. Don't, <laughs> second don't. round. I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm putting that bandaid back on, but it just shows you that, you know, you scout, right? There, there are lots of reasons. Norman Powell, not, Talking about a Bucks context, he is a good reason for that when you look at how he played in the playoffs. Chris yes. Middleton, good reason. Maybe the best reason, Draymond Green. Like yep. they're every, Or Isaiah Thomas, I mean he was the last pick. Every pick is valuable. The same goes for a mid first round picks. I think we might have touched on this some one of the later podcasts in the playoffs, but just look at Giannis, look at Kawhi, look at Rudy Gobert. I mean, it it just really comes down to this you don't need the first overall pick it's not like if it's not a top 10 pick it's not valuable that's really not the way it works anymore i i think the thing with brogdon that impresses me the most is just how he manages games and he just does it across all areas as you kind of touched on i don't think we'll see big improvement from him in any kind of specific areas something sweeping that you go oh well that pushes him to another level pushes the books to another level but what you're already looking at, rookie season where he shot 45.7 from the field, 40.4 from three, and 86.5 from the free throw line. That's a guy who could mature into a 50-40-90 shooter. That was not expected. That was not expected when you looked at his shot coming out of college. If that turns out to be something that's sustainable, it doesn't matter if he's playing 15 to 20 minutes, he's not your number one guy. But if you have someone who's that caliber of shooter who can come into the game, who can also create um, 4.2 assists to 1.5 turnovers per game. That's an assist to turnover ratio of 2.81, which led the entire team. In his rookie season, when he was tasked with starting for the books of point guard, uh, I don't know what way it kind of tell you at the end. It must be for close to half of the season. That, yeah. It fe- that sounds right. It feels like it. Um, so, all of those things are just incredibly impressive you have the way where 
at times in the playoffs, I guess he was he was inconsistent, but he, at, at times he was able to step up. You have the game on the road in Boston where he steps up, he hits big shots. You have him dunking on Kyrie Irving, on LeBron James. Malcolm Brogdon isn't afraid at the moment. He's very at home in his surroundings in the NBA. He is the right kind of guy for this team in terms of personality. It's really tough to find the negatives in it. It's just that kind of well-rounded player that the rotation has been missing for a long time. He could be your starting point guard for the next 10 years. He could also be your backup point guard for the next 10 years. Whichever one it is, he's going to be really good in that role. You're going to need something else from the other role, but whichever it is, he's going to do his part, and it's going to be on the coaching, his teammates, the decisions the books make and filling out those other spots to get the right mix out of the point guard position. But he's going to hold up his end of the bargain, and I think we can already see what he can do. It's very exciting. I mean, it's not like we haven't talked about Malcolm Brogdon before, but that's a big deal. That's, to me, I think the guy that I can now see really kind of real sim- similarities in terms of not necessarily his his style, although there are some parts of that, but just more the kind of player he can be in his contribution for so long we talk about like a George Hill or a Patrick Beverly. Maybe he could be a George Hill or a Patrick Beverly. I, I George Hill, there are really strong kind of similarities between the two, in my mind. I, I can really see that. And if you end up with that kind of player, that's a massive win. Agreed. Next season from Brogdon, what is it you're looking for? I think we're probably both in agreement. It's unrealistic to expect a major jump, as in to really transform something. Maybe he does improve a little. That That's definitely in play. He gets more comfortable. He's more confident. He has more time to work in, MV, in an NBA setting with kind of NBA trainers, players around him. But what would it really be that you're looking to get from? Is it more of the same? Is that really something that we'd be happy with longer term if we can say, we know he's going to give us that at the, very, at the very least. And then it's about filling in around him. Uh, certainly. I mean, you when you set a, this type of bar in your rookie season, uh, you certainly hope that he can kind of raise it a little bit in various areas. I mean, there are definite concerns I have for him uh, in terms of how much better he can be. Um you know, we talked about it many times before, but like just shooting off the dribble, fishing at the rim, uh, you know, even though he was a great three-point shooter this year, I mean, you certainly want to see if he can kind of translate that into other areas because he was, you know, mainly a catch-and-shoot guy. Um, and, you know, keep you up. I, you know, defensively, he is a great defend, you know, defensive player, obviously. He has the pedigree uh, throughout his years in college and obviously this year too. But you also want to see if he is – how can he – Can he? is there a way for him to kind of out offset going against uh, uh, faster guards? I don't know. Our, our good friend of the podcast, Mr. Vin Baker, not the real Vin Baker, but your dog Vin, he was weighing in on that. Yeah, he, he was 
grumbling a bit. He what? does not agree with my assessment. Is that what you think? He didn't agree? Was was that a... I suppose it's it's most likely he would be. That was a grumble. Okay. Yeah. Maybe maybe he thinks there's a big jump to come. Hashtag Vin knows best. <laughs> Moving on to Machu Davidova. One of the most interesting elements of exit interviews for me was when Delhi spoke in his interview about this being the first summer in a long time where his calendar is basically open. I don't know why, but I just hadn't really, this hadn't registered with me during the season. But it feels kind of like a big deal. As much as it gets talked about, like, say, the load LeBron is carrying because, you know, he was in the finals, he's gone to the finals two straight years, he's obviously gone a lot longer than that. But this kind of burden of everything coming back and forth. Delhi went to two straight finals and he was at the Olympics last year after being at the finals, after winning a championship, which is maybe the maximum kind of outpouring of energy, emotion, the maximum adrenaline dump that you could have is kind of... Max grit. It's kind of achieving your goal, winning a championship. Then he went to the Olympics. He didn't just kind of go play at the Olympics. He played really well. Australia went deep. They they were probably the best team outside of the US in that tournament. I think they were right there. I guess you know, Serbia, Spain were were in the conversation too. Um obviously the it was the bronze medal game, wasn't it, that they ended up in the, they lost in the semi final and then yeah. but I thought in terms of the quality of basketball, when they played to their best in that tournament, they were probably the second best team on that occasion. It's a lot of basketball, a lot of high quality basketball and games were a lot rested on Delhi's shoulders. This is the benefit of hindsight, although we should have probably seen this with foresight. Can we kind of look at the season and say maybe him struggling with his shot relatively and... You know, just some of some of the inconsistencies or struggles that we may not have expected and say, maybe we will get a much better Delhi next year because he has every reason to be tired. Uh, yeah, I mean, we talked about him in the past and how there are concerns of durability uh, with him, especially taking out bigger, you know, workloads and stuff like that. And obviously he started for a good amount of the season as well. Even though he did lose his starting job, he was still playing regular minutes uh, more than I bet he probably had more the most minutes of any year so far in his career with the Bucks. Want to say? But uh, yeah, I mean, I think like you said, it's easy to have hindsight with this, but when you see he's making two back-to-back finals trips, goes to the Olympics. Uh, that's goes through free agency as well. Goes through free agency as well. Yes, exactly. I mean, there's you can, you can kind of see this kind of season coming, especially for a player like Del Vadova. You're correct. And by the way. most most minutes of his career, one thousand nine hundred eighty six in the regular season, so just below two thousand minutes. Oh, there first you time go. his career. So, Del played a lot. Yeah, but uh, I mean, it just makes sense. 
you know, and there, I mean, that isn't to say that there weren't some positives, like we said before. Yeah, he didn't have the greatest shooting season. Yeah, there are serious. <laughs> it was not. It was not fun watching him in clutch time situations, but he was still per, very good as uh, you know dis- distributor. Um, he's still there's just there's a baseline with what he comes with, and uh, sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. But uh, you know, judging by what the last couple of years have been this summer, like you said, it's. That's going to be very key for him, just to kind of more just recharge than anything. Not to like have sure you want to see him like get better in some areas, but just to have that recharge, a reload, kind of come cooling down period. Uh, that's just that's massive for a guy like Delhi. Yeah, and he said he's going to do that. He talked about he's going to go back to Australia. He's going to go and see his family. He's getting married this summer, and he put it as. He's excited to actually have the time to work on his body and work on his game. And that it, it's it's interesting to think about. I, I don't think it should necessarily be brushed under the rug. I don't think Delhi sees him as bad as a lot of people would like to make it out to be. That's not all that's surprising. Everyone has their agendas, it seems. But I think, look, he was on it. Factions. Yeah, we don't need to go into factions. Everyone at this point knows how we hate the factions. But Delhi struggled in some areas. We probably expected him to be better. I think he was a lot better in intangible ways than I necessarily thought he would be. He's he's the kind of guy who I always thought he'd be a good teammate. He'd set a good example. But it turned out he was more of a kind of more of an obvious leader in this group. I don't know if I quite saw that. The way players talked about him, his teammates throughout the season. The way then that, I mean, he stood up in game six and had one of his very best games of the season when it mattered most. There was obviously the joke of, you know, playoff Delhi, but it was kind of fair. He did some things in the playoffs and he, he had some notable moments, some notable performances where you'd say, he's shown to be a guy who does have another level of whatever. It can be just energy, effort, intensity, if we want to go down the cliche deli lines, but there, there is something there that you can kind of, you can kind of go to. You alluded to it. He's his ability as a distributor. And I guess his efficiency is reliability. Don't think he gets a lot of credit for that. I don't think books fans would view deli and say, Oh, he's, he's doing a lot of positive things to get other books baskets but this is a common theme for all three guys we're talking about this week that he was third in assist to turnover ratio 2.68 and each of brogdon terry and delavidova really did a great job of taking care of the ball ranging from 2.68 delhi to 2.81 malcolm brogdon for assist to turnover ratio that's really quite good. All three of them, if I remember correctly, I did the stuff when I did the, the article in Delhi Season Review. Pretty sure all three of them are top 30 in the NBA among point guards who, say, started 50 games and played more than 10 minutes a game. So that's, that's very significant. The Bucks guards did a great job of taking care of the ball this year. That really helps you out. Also worth noting, Delhi led the team in assist ratio. Second in assist percentage. 
Like he he's doing all the things. It's it's as simple as if he gives you the same season next year and manages to up his shooting percentages, there's no complaints. Everyone will be happy with the kind of the distribution you got if you can add that in. To me, it doesn't seem beyond the realm of possibility that we get a better Delhi next year. And I'm not sure how people react to even hearing this, Jordan. I imagine it won't be popular. This is, this is how you led into the, the Delhi conversation. And I, I fully anticipate and I'm prepared for the backlash. I am uh, 100% in on the Delhi renaissance or the Della, Delhi... The Delaissance? Um, Delaissance? Ah. I don't think it delicatessen. Mm, a different different thing, but yeah, uh, okay. Uh, yeah, I I, I do. I, I I feel like there is. He will be reborn. <laughs> I think he's a very useful player to have in your rotation, and I think the books have a lot of those guys at the moment. Maybe some will leave in the summer, and we'll look at it in a different way. I. I don't know if where this team is at we fully understand just how valuable certain guys are beyond some of their more obvious box score counting stack contributions or even what shows up in advanced numbers there's an element of the books still have some obvious glaring needs and weaknesses and it seems to be the tendency to shift the blame onto the players who should never be able to fill those needs in the first place just because you don't have the right personnel to fill those gaps. I think point guard is the best example of that. Delhi, Brogdon, they're, no matter what they do, they'd have questions of, oh, well, you know, if you put them up against a Kyrie Irving or a John Wall, how are they going to cope with their speed? Or how are they going to get past guys off the dribble, create for themselves? You know, those kind of questions. It comes back to dynamism again, just this kind of ability to find a point guard who isn't just a kind of steady contributor, but will go straight out and make things happen for themselves and everyone else. I think Delhi is maybe the guy who gets the most blame for being something or for not being something he was never supposed to be it's like the books can have the perfect point guard rotation with Delhi, with Brogdon and hopefully one point guard who's a little bit different to them agreed lastly not exactly a point guard although he used to be I guess did play some minutes there throughout the, the season could also fall into the shooting guard category, but as I mentioned at the start, he's a small guard. You know, we'll take the smaller guys, we'll put them together. Jason the Jet Terry. Um, I wrote the Delhi season review on site. You actually wrote the season review for Jet. So, I mean, who better to speak about this? Jason Terry season is the biggest revelation about Jason Terry season Jason Terry himself and the fact that he's still relevant is that is it as simple as that he's proven himself to be something more than we could have possibly have hoped for at the age of 40 essentially yeah basically <laughs> honestly I remember uh, Kevin Pelton of ESPN he tweeted something it was like one of the 
closing weeks of the season, he said something about like there. We don't talk about how, or there should be more credit given to Jason Terry for the fact that he has a role at you know thirty nine years old on a playoff team, and that's pretty impressive uh, for the sake. I mean, this guy. That the other thing too about this. I mean, Jason Terry a couple of years ago, he could have easily been out of the league. You know, after his one year with Boston, then going to Brooklyn. And then going, you know, being traded to Sacramento, who he'd even play for. I mean, he very well could have been, you know, no one could have gone after him. Uh, it wasn't for his kind of the Terry Renaissance in <laughs> Houston. Uh, but yeah, I just think he was asked to do kind of something very simple and do something very complicated and just, you know, kind of bring together a locker room that needed a veteran leader, you know, veteran voice. And then in terms of on the court, I mean, he just needed to stand in the corner and hit shots, which, you know, he did at a very good rate this year. Uh, I mean, that in itself is just a win. When he was on the floor this year, he was, the Bucks were a very good team with him on the floor. And we're not talking about uh, garbage time minutes or a small amount of minutes. The guy played over, I think it was like 1,310 minutes, something like that. Like that's a, that's that's a pretty big role in a 82 game season, so I mean that again, the, like you said, the fact that he's a relevant name for a a team on the rise that you know won 42 wins this year uh, or won 42 games this year, that's pretty big. I I think it's kind of important to remember, like Jason Terry's no boom. Jason Terry's career has been a particularly and if anybody says he is, oh. <laughs> Tough to answer to Jordan Tresky. But this is a guy who, in his prime, and I mean early in his career, but in his prime, was close to a 20 point per game score. Um, a steady kind of four to six assists per game would be a good. Uh, there was, there, he did have, I mean, his career high 7.4 assists per game, so he was above that at times. Steady rebounder, excellent shooter. Jason Terry had a second best three point shooting season in terms of percentage ever this year. 42.7%. One of my favorite stats throughout the season. Considering he played 18.4 minutes per game, which was the third lowest mark of his career, Jason Terry had the best shot blocking season of his career. 0.3 blocks per game in just 18.4 minutes. With the lack of wingspan that he has. Only six feet two inches tall. He just found so many ways to actually influence games. It really is a marvel. I don't quite get how or why it happened. But I think I speak for all of us when I say I'm incredibly grateful for the experience. The big question, Jordan. Oh. Is Jeff back next year? Yes, 100%. One year, Batman. One year Jetman. I like it. I think what's maybe more interesting about that is just how important that would be if for some reason that didn't happen. If for some reason, and I think he's kind of moved beyond this point, and it helps that he has won a championship before. But, I mean, contenders would have good reason to want Jason Terry on their team. If the Cavs called him up in the summer, I'm like, here, one year of that meant to come play for us. The Warriors, likewise, one year. 
Like, if he had those offers and he left, I think we would kind of sit here and be like, damn, that's a really big loss. Um, Catastrophic for, I guess, leadership or for any sort of veteran guidance in the roster, but also for production on the court and for his shooting ability. Game six, Jason Terry's game six will live on in the memory of a lot of people for a long time. Just all of the plays and the stretch, incredible plays. He nearly turned the game. Giannis was incredible in that game. It would have been Jason Terry who turned that game around and got the win if it actually happened. Let's hope he's back. Honestly, I'd, I'd hope he's going to be a part of the organization for a long time. Even beyond this, I would like to see Jason Terry on the bench. His coach, I'd like to see him involved in the D-League team. I don't know, maybe get Jason Terry into the front office. Whatever job we can get Jason Terry to be in Milwaukee long term, I'm all for it. Agreed. A lot of agreement today. This is good, Jordan. What a, what a positive way to start the off-season off. Agreement. <laughs> you going to agree with that? I, I, I will agree with that. Let's move on to the mad leg. Let's... Uh, a lot of Alex Kane questions this week. Alex lives for the off-season. Um, it's a bit like Jordan. I've said this to Jordan before. I always find Jordan writes more articles in the off-season. He is just that kind of sick and twisted that he, he actually ramps things up a notch when everyone else is like, okay, I'm going to tune out of that for six months. There is no off-season for me. There's only on-season. Well, and plus, too, I, I'm, pa- I'm waiting patiently for my favorite time of the year. Summer league. That's really your favorite time of the year? Yes. I don't know what that says about you as a person, but... It's where amazing happens. Uh, yeah. First one from Alex underscore Canning 3 How did Adam survive this playoff run? I did. I, I was fine. Um, <laughs> playoff run was not the problem as much as the daily podcasts. That ingenious idea. Jordan Tresky's ingenious idea, I might add. Jordan came up with that idea. His schedule became more challenging, and I, I just about clung on to sanity, and we got through. But we got through it together, everyone. I, yep. I managed. Um, I'll. I was gonna say, hopefully, be better prepared for for next year for for a deeper run, but I will probably just handle it exactly as poorly, if not worse. So. There's always that to look forward to. From Alex again. Going back to what we kind of opened up with. Would we have gotten at least one game against this Cavs team? Or would we be crying after getting smacked around as well? I would not be crying. No. It, it definitely wouldn't be that kind of series. I Honestly, we'd probably be more like, hey, we won a series. And it's like, who cares what I, happens after that? Yeah, I completely agree with that. that how great will that have been you you honestly wouldn't have cared you'd have been like this team won a series they won a series without jabari parker we'd have all of those kind of things the books would have got beaten really badly i do i do think they would have possibly given a better series than the raptors but be under no illusion 
I think that series still ends up with them being swept. Just some of the games might be, say, five points closer than they were. That's the kind of that's the kind of wiggle room there was for just how good this Cavs team is right now and other Eastern teams slowing them down. I think it's great and it's easy to say in theory, oh, you know, Giannis. If LeBron came up with Giannis, that's a tough, it's a tough matchup for him. Giannis is about as well-equipped to cover him as anyone. There is no denying that is true, and that's a great positive for Giannis in the books longer term. There's just no stopping him. <laughs> you can be you can be a really good matchup, but still not. PJ Tucker is genuinely a good matchup, and uh, it was noted in the the ESPN broadcast a couple times in today's game where they were talking about PJ Tucker had an excellent game four, and LeBron had thirty four points, nine rebounds, six assists, whatever it was, made five three pointers. Uh, went, <laughs> went to the line nine times, made eight of them. I mean, oh, it doesn't matter. Them's the breaks. Yeah, it really, it really doesn't matter. The guy is the best player in the sport. He's the best player in the world. There's not a lot you can do if he's going to play like that. So I, I do think the books give a better series. I think that series ends in four. We wouldn't be remembering the series, as Jordan rightly said, if they had got there we'd get to a point probably after two or three games, we'd be like, can this just end so we can then get back to going, well, we won a series. The next one from Alex again. Who's more movable? Henson or Telly? Should we jump at a chance to offload them without giving up assets? I take an exception to this question. Did you see Telly's exit interview? I didn't see it, but I read it through your... Exit interview roundup. I'm not sure I even included all of the... His was definitely the, the only one that wouldn't have been out of place in last year's exit interviews. <laughs> As in, there were some kind of cutting stuff in there. A lot of it obviously directed at himself. Um, but definitely not happy. Definitely disappointed in himself. That, strange that hurts my heart. Of, strange kind of vibe to it. Uh, why am I, why are you doing this? Come on. Uh, to answer the question, Henson. I, I think that's pretty simple. I think I'm in this place with Henson that probably says all that needs to be said is I. I really like John Henson. I think John Henson's one of the best guys on this team, and um, he's one of the get best guys in the community. Uh, he's always. A lot of fun to listen to when he's interviewed in any of these kind of settings. He's pretty smart, pretty insightful. It just comes down to we're still waiting. You know, when he's on the court, it's we're still waiting for him to be more than just this bundle of inconsistencies whose physical attributes promise something much greater than what he actually seems to be at this point. It's a very, very difficult one. Injuries are also a major part of the John Henson story at this point. There just always seems to be something. Um, Charles Gardner kind of brought up with him on media day, or sorry, in the exit interviews where he said, like, oh, you know, I felt like you were getting into a really good run of things. You were playing some of your best basketball this season. The Portland game where he got injured and then missed his latter part of the year, he had five blocks. That's kind of a recurring team at this point, though. It's that, you know, even if John Henson does get something going, 
if it's not his play being inconsistent that stops him from kind of carving out a bigger, more permanent role with the books, it's his health being inconsistent and that limiting his opportunities. Is this just too much for you at this point? Yeah. I mean, there's just, like you said, there is just something that's always in the way of making Henson a, just a valuable role player. Uh, someone that is his doing, so that is just, like you said, injuries, uh, rotation, <laughs> Jason Kidd, maybe to a degree. <laughs> but uh, I mean, it's just, I don't know. I, I want off this ride. It's best for both parties. Plus, too, I just think he, there is, there is a, place where I think he can be a positive contributor, but with what we saw with Thon and stuff like that, like I just don't I don't see it any other way. He could absolutely be a guy who really benefits from a fresh start. And then we have to listen to Bucks fans who have kind of rained on Henson for years, then say, Oh, they should have kept Henson. Look what he's doing now. He could have been the starting center. That seems like an inevitable road that we're going to have to travel at some point. But to be honest, we get to Telly. I think Telly, I think Telly gets moved. If they if they can find a deal, I think Telly's gone. How dare you? It's just it's just the truth. I think Telly could be Are you are you saying what I think you're saying? Mount Mirza? Uh, I mean it will still exist. It's just the view of Mount Mirza from Milwaukee will be a lot more obscured. It'll be very distant. I, I, I just, I, that's my feeling. I'm not necessarily saying they should do that. Um, I, I still believe he could turn it around, and he is definitely a guy who you could kind of cut ties with and then be going by like <laughs> the end of November of next season, be like, what have we done? He's shooting 46% from three point range. On four or five attempts a game. That would really be helpful right now. But. They gave him a pretty significant contract. He's not the youngest guy. I think that's always worth remembering is. They really. They signed him for this contract. Like if he was going to be around beyond this. It would have been on pretty low end deals. So if he's not holding up his bargain. At this age. At this part of this deal. The long-term prognosis is not great for Telly's future in Milwaukee. I would honestly kind of, I kind of expect if they, if there is interest, a deal will be done by draft night. That's an if, Jordan. Only if there's interest. So I don't know. This is a internal battle for you. You're such a staunch supporter that you must think, well, who wouldn't be interested? But exactly. Uh, okay. So well then. If we put our two two brains together on that one, he'll be traded by the deadline. Um, who's more movable was the question. I don't think either of them are unmovable or necessarily obvious targets for anyone else. They're just fine. Maybe it's a books thing. We've become used to having contracts that are either super movable or just car crashes. This one is fine. I don't. I don't think it has to. Neither deal is going to kill you. Maybe you do salvage, and then it becomes a really good deal for you. I think they're fine. I don't think either is more or less movable than the other. 
they're roughly the same too. I mean, it's just a difference of years at this point and uh, a million dollar difference. Not, I mean, right. it's pretty. It's roughly the same. Again, from Alex Koenig, does it seem all but inevitable that Hawes opts in? Monroe seems more up in the air, right? I really don't know about Monroe. I, I think Monroe. As I alluded to earlier, those quotes from his agent, David Falk, this is purely speculation, but I'm sort of feeling he definitely wants to come back. They're going to have the conversation of probably, well, can I opt out and we come to an agreement on something? Let's have this discussion now. Let's figure this out. And if you say what we want to hear, I'll opt out. I'll resign. And we don't have to worry about doing this again for a few years. On the other hand, if they don't want to do exactly what he does that's so that's how he moves on so i'm not quite sure he's gonna opt in anyway i'll say that much do you hear that whooshing in the distance i thought that was like the air conditioning in your room jordan no that's a lasso yee-haws <laughs> uh I think he opts in. It's guaranteed money. It's Moose, it's... Moose or Hawes? Oh, Hawes. Sorry, Hawes. I I didn't even get to the Hawes part of it yet. I don't know. I honestly don't know. I don't really care either. I mean, it would be ideal if he didn't, and the books might still decide to bring him back, and his next deal is likely cheaper than this current one. But I don't really care. I mean, I don't. It's not going to kill you if he comes back. It's not ideal, but. It's better than having Plumlee's contract on the books, which is literally the reason the deal was done. So you kind of, you you live with that one. You're like, oh, you don't go. God damn, we just, you know, we, we've blown it. We can't do anything because we've got Spencer Hall's contract. No, his contract is there so that Miles Plumlee's wouldn't be there. So <laughs> I don't care. It will work out one way or another. Maybe he'll be back. I wouldn't hate it. I'm not going to be overly disappointed if he's not back either. It is what it is. I can hear it now, Jordan. Loud and clear. From Ad- Adam Golson. Which, if I... This is... The Twitter handles can trick you, Jordan. If I look at this, this the display name, um, rather than Golson, which I dis- I kind of struggled in pronouncing... It's Adam G. Allison, which is much easier. Oh. Who starts a point guard next year for the books? Could a deadly trade be in the mix this offseason? I am going to say 99% confidence on my part that Delhi will not be traded this year, that he'll be back with the books next year, that he won't really be traded at any point soon. If Delhi was to get traded, there's probably something really positive or something the books feel really good about and something that's bigger going on elsewhere uh, I think Delhi will be back who starts a point guard next year for the books Delhi or Brogdon probably Brogdon he finished this year but I think Delhi or Brogdon is the answer to that question Tis the first question Mr. Malcolm Moses Adams Brogdon was that correct do we determine correct. Yeah. okay 100 Delhi's not Delhi's not going anywhere. One hundred percent. That is. I I see. I wanted to. This is why you go ninety nine. I wanted to go hundred, but this is the books, so ninety nine will do for people. The next one from Alex Kane again. 
And he chance Hammond takes another job after he transitioned Zanuck, i.e. Orlando. This is something I forgot to mention in the things that have happened in the past week. Um, Mark Steen of ESPN, which in itself is something that's happened in the past week. Story for another day. But he reported that among the candidates, the Magic are looking for to take the leading role in their front office, whatever they decide to call it, President of Basketball Operations, General Manager, is one John Hammond. I think to answer this question, any chance he takes another job after he transitions Zanuck? Yes. Chance he takes it beforehand, even. I'm not saying it's a high chance, but could it happen? Yes, absolutely it could happen. Um, we, without knowing all of the details, we all know, and if you're listening to this podcast, I'm sure you know that there's been some weird stuff with the way decisions have been made, with the way roles have been distributed in the book's front office. If there's any sort of disgruntlement on John Hammond's part, maybe the chance to be a top boss elsewhere would be appealing. Also, I mean, let's be real here. He is going to, if he stays in Milwaukee, transition into this consultant role. He's at an age where, I don't know, maybe he's no plans on retiring, but he could retire in the coming years if he wanted to. Florida's not the worst place to, you know, let's go, let's catch some rays. These latter years of my career. Um, obviously By rays, I mean... Tampa Bay Rays games. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I meant, Jordan. I mean, you can. He'd be free to do that. Do you? Do, what was your reaction, I guess, to that news? First of all, did it surprise you? Did it catch it off guard? Catch you off guard, or did you? I guess. Do you feel? Oh no, Hammond's here. That's it. Like I, I really feel if it happened and he ended up elsewhere, I'd be like, well, yeah. I mean, possibly. Uh, a problem of Milwaukee's own creation, that would be. Well, I do have some breaking news of my own before I get into my answer. You're the new general question. manager in Orlando? I have been contacted about the position of... <laughs> I was going to do a terrible Dwight <laughs> Regional manager. Sorry. Uh, yeah, I've been contacted by the... That's a dumb joke. No one will like that. Not even me, and I like my jokes. Uh, to answer the question seriously, that was a, that was an all time classic kind of Jordan yeah. just checking out, checking out on his job midway I'm, through. I'm in my little jet plane, and I'm like, oh, and then you press that big button, boom, out of there. Um, it, I don't know. I I think maybe because of my Rom Springer. I was, I have kind of not checked out, but just been kind of in airplane mode, if you will, (laughs) with uh, anything basketball related or Bucks related at this point. So when I saw it, I was like, oh, who are they not looking at (laughs) that is already in a position? Um, But I know we have talked about this before privately that, uh, you know, what will that look like when he does that kind of change does happen when Zanuck takes over fully and uh, John Hammond assumes a consultant like role, not unlike Rod Thorne. Uh, I don't know. I mean, he's, I think he's like 62. He's been 
he's been a basketball lifer as as the term has been thrown out about him. Um, I mean, he he does offer value still. I mean, obviously, uh, I, w- I would say we're very pro-Hammond people. You see the benefits of everything he does. Obviously, like any general manager, especially a long-tenured ten- general manager, uh, a position, person of in a position of power, there are going to be notable uh, mistakes. Uh, and it doesn't, you know, we can only look at last summer as seeing a big mistake, but he does own up to those mistakes very quickly and very swiftly. Um, but he's brought more positivity to this organization than, you know, uh, drawbacks at this point. Uh, a team like the Orlando Magic, and, you know, with this example, I mean, who knows? I can see why they are looking into him. I can also see why it's a smokescreen and maybe Doc Rivers eventually gets back there as the conspiracy theory has been suggested. But uh, I don't know. I think either way, he, that transfer of power, you know, when it happens next year, uh, he's definitely – his role is not going to be as what it once was. And if he does want to move on, maybe for one last – kind of big job who knows uh it's definitely gonna be a loss i think he is it he again like i said he brings just having him in uh you know in your organization i think he just brings more good than bad obviously i think if he was a if he was a slightly younger guy there would be interesting questions about how you kind of work out the dynamics now you balance what are obvious strengths of john hammonds with maybe what some of his weaknesses are uh, the draft, for example, there just aren't a whole lot of GMs who have been tenured long term who've managed to have the kind of success he's had with pretty mediocre picks. I I love always amuses me because there's a strong element of I don't know I don't I don't need to I don't need to go to too deep into what I think maybe where it comes from or any of the motivations behind it, but there's a strong element of he's been around since this date. The books haven't won a playoff series, haven't done this. I mean, how can we say he's a good GM? That job is a lot more nuanced than that. A lot more. Um, Head coaches have an incredibly difficult job. I think general manager might be the most difficult job in basketball. You've got the most kind of people to answer to. You're answering to players, the coach, your owners. Every decision you make, you know, you're not just affecting one game of an 82 season. You can make like a Plumlee decision and potentially, I mean, tear down a team's future. Look at the stuff the Nets did to get Paul Pierce and Kevin Garnett and tell me like that job doesn't have further reaching repercussions than anything else. This is the guy who drafted Giannis. That on its own is enough that you'd kind of have to back off. But it's even better from Milwaukee's point of view that it can't be it can't be dismissed as a fluke. Because he's also the guy who drafted Tom. He's also the guy who drafted Malcolm Brogdon in the second round. He knew Middleton was worth kind of looking for as a throw-in in the the Brandon Jennings trade. He picked up Larry Sanders. People could say what they want about Larry Sanders now, but if you look at Larry Sanders as a talent and the potential he showed, that was a guy who was very good value where he was picked. 
even John Henson, for the potential that John Henson hasn't realised, may never realise, he's a kind of swing for the fences pick at that spot that, you know, has carved a lengthy NBA career for himself. These are... These again are the kind of guys that if you can just if you can do that year in year out, I mean look at the Warriors. Everyone loves to fawn over the Warriors. I think they are Milwaukee style in an ideal world down the line should be closer to replicating Cleveland's. But even if they want to get to that point, the way they're gonna have to get there is gonna have to be closer to how Golden State got to their current roster. You're going to have to make every pick, every first round pick, every second round pick count and build to a point where you have contributors who can help you get over the line. John Hammond has a great track record at that. If he can keep that up, that's what makes the books into a contender just as much as kind of some sort of big swing that gets you Tom and Tom turns out to be real. It's having kind of guys 10, 11, 12 who can come in and maybe have the performance or like win you a game in a conference finals. It's, it's all building those things up. Signing Andre Iguodala and having him come off of the bench after your first season. That sounds like a, a bearded man who likes the Calatrava. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I just, I think John Hammond has earned his reputation. Remember, a key component, many people say, one of the driving forces behind the scenes of a lot of the good decisions made in Detroit around the time they won a championship. A long-time respected scout in the league. I get why teams want him. If a team comes with the right offer, and if he is kind of being given... Look, he's not being given the kind of a clear elbow. It's not an elbow that's going to take your head off your shoulders. But even if he's getting kind of a... I know, a PJ Tucker to Darren Williams side elbow, like we saw... In, in game four earlier on in that second round series. One of those, maybe he'd go, you know what? Run my own team again my last two years in the league, see what I can build. Maybe I have one last kind of big project in me. Yeah, why not? Why not? Let's go back to that. I don't Or he could go to his original creation, Jurassic Park. <laughs> Always an option. From Alex Koenig again. If Monroe opts out, do you see him coming back on a 3 plus 1 at around the same price point? 64 to 70 million over four years. Is this something we should want? I don't know. I don't know what Monroe is going to ask for if he opts out. I think it's very difficult. I'd go 4 minus 2. That's what? just a little, little arithmetic there. It doesn't make sense. It does not make sense. I'm glad it doesn't because I'm very tired and my brain's not there, Jordan. <laughs> Have Sorry. you any kind of serious answer for this? Uh, no. <laughs> Sorry. You don't have any expectation for if Monroe opts out what he could get? Uh, as Charles Dickens once wrote in oh, his... God. Really? Yes. I think it's too difficult, Alex. I think that's really, when you're getting jokes like this from Jordan, this kind of blatant dodging of the question, I think that proves it's very difficult. I, exactly. I think you he... you found my formula. Yeah, it was a big secret. No one could detect <laughs> that one. Uh, 
I do think one thing that could be said is even if he wants to opt out, he will probably speak to the books first. It really feels that way. That will probably be his preference. It's just then whether his expectations fall in line with what the books can do, what the books want to do. Only time will tell. Ominous warning for the summer ahead. From Atmetastic. So we're drafting Taco Fall, right? I'm going to, before you come in on this, for some reason Taco Fall is a mailbag favorite this week. Um, a big boy 0200 said Taco Fall is a must, right? Um, then Tim came back later with, if we draft Taco Fall, or not Tim, Matt. See, this is what happens when it's late. I just, I mix one mailbag staple into another. Matt came back with, if we draft Taco Fall, is it final proof John Hammond is building a team of monsters? Maybe it is. Maybe this would be his final project. And if, you know, if he needed a place to showcase his work, he could always set up an attraction at Jurassic Park. Mm, I like the sound of that. Um, I don't know. Uh, maybe I was more of a Taco Autumn. Oh fellow. my god! As much as I appreciate your your nod to Autumn, the I mean the real, the proper title of that particular season. Are you familiar with Taco Falls game? No, I am not. Well, I will say about Taco Fall from from he's, what I... he's incredibly tall. I know he's seven Taco feet, Fall is seven, incredibly tall, seven feet six inches tall. From what I have watched, what I've read on Taco Fall so far, he is painfully kind of slow, unathletic, uncoordinated in some ways. He doesn't have what makes Ton so special, which is this kind of natural movement on both ends of the floor that's going to create versatility really gives you options he is a post player a post player only he has no real shot at all he shoots 40 something percent 46 percent i think from the free throw line uh no i'm not feeling this one to be honest this we don't need to start viewing the books as the team that you know let's just Who's up next? Who's the next big gamble? Let's hope the next big gamble is another good gamble, another smart, informed one, <laughs> rather than just, hey, there's another, there's another tall, long guy. Let's pick him. Um, I don't. Why would they need someone like that at center when they've got Tom? From the few pictures I've seen on Google Images here, do you like the the glasses, the goggles? I do like the. I'm I'm pro goggles. Uh, he has, this is incredibly a random aside, but he has uh, a crazy good posture. I don't know why. Just came across that way. Back to the I, analysis. I, I guess it's important <laughs> when you're that kind of height. You know, it's it's not, you don't want to be hunched over if you're seven feet, six inches tall. It's the natural thing to do, maybe. To feel like you fit in, but you know, stand tall. Stand tall, like the rock. Stand tall. Walk tall, like the rock. The rock. Well, I was gonna say stand tall, tackle fall, but have a nice fall. 
For the next one from at MSB and Nola. Nilikina question mark. Trade up question mark. Possibility question mark. Is there a better prospect for the books? Question mark. Uh, they're not going to trade up for him. Exclamation point. They, they just they can't really. Is the <laughs> yeah, they can. Um, I think they might like to if there was an easy way where they could get up a few spots and get someone like that. That would be ideal. Nidikina might be the perfect prospect for the books in the draft, but yeah, not an easy way to get to him. The only way to get to him is if they give up picks. I don't know if you want to do that. That doesn't seem wise. No. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there has to be some sort of... Other factors have to come in play for them to even kind of be in the realm of taking him at the position that they are right now. So, uh, yeah. From at Anthony six seven four two three two three zero, what can we expect Tom Maker's averages to be next year? Hmm. What were they this year? This year, Tom averaged four points, two rebounds. 0.5 blocks, 0.4 0.2 steals, and 45.9, 37.8, 65.3 shooting splits in 9.9 minutes per game. 14.5 and 7.3 with 1.7 blocks per 36. Hmm. You know what? I'll go. I'll, I'll, let's go with this. Eight and five. Uh, and I, shoots... quite, I quite like that. I think it's eight and six might even be. I'm I'm in the same kind of range for you. What were you gonna say? He shoots what kind of percentages? Uh, let's go. With, you know, well, he shot thirty. Uh, hmm. Uh, I was gonna say thirty-seven percent from three, but that is basically what he shot this year. I mean, what he did in the playoffs was five point eight points per game, three point two rebounds per game. 1.8 blocks per game, two assists per game. We, I forgot about that. I mean, not too dissimilar from what he did in the playoffs because he, you know, had a much bigger role in those games, obviously, than the season. So, yeah, I would say eight and five. That sounds right. I, I also think we're talking about those kind of numbers. Maybe the most exciting part of this is if Tan got 20 minutes per game, if he's ready for 20 minutes per game. He could possibly be like a two blocks per game guy or 1.8 blocks per game guy in just 20 minutes, which that's your, I mean, that's possibly the most important if we're like talking per game averages with Tom Maker, that might be the one where you go, wow, okay, I can see how that changes the dynamic of this books team. I think the shooting will probably improve. I don't really know though how much it would matter if the difference between 37.8 to 40% from three as opposed to I would like to see that free throw percentage move up dramatically. I don't know why he struggled with free throws this year, but 65.3% doesn't really cut it, and this books team as a whole needs to get on top of free throws because it yeah. hit them pretty badly late in the season. Having been a solid free throw shooting team, I mean, in recent years, not the best, not the worst, fine. Um, They missed some big free throws, just like the latter stretches of the season but they were playing well they weren't even really making free throws so that's 
you want to be a serious team, you want to be kind of, if you want to get to the 50-win range, if you want to win a series in the playoffs, all of those things, you've got to make your free throws. They're free for a reason, right? Is that they, that's what they always say? It works. Even if no one says it, Jordan, that works. So we'll let you have it. Thank you. From a Taylor Desch. This is arguably LeBron's best postseason efficiency-wise. Can the Bucks afford to push really hard this summer only to miss the finals for foreseeable future, possibly three years? This is an interesting question. I think the first thing is it's probably important to say I don't think the books will be pushing so hard this summer in terms of a like immediate move. But at the same time, what they do this summer will dictate what their roster probably looks like three years from now as well. It's tough. yeah, you've you've just got to. The books are lucky enough that their their core players are young and have room to grow themselves. And I think they can just not be reckless without making any unnecessary moves. You've got to try, as other teams in the East have been doing, to be positioned that you are the next best team. So that if the drop-off does happen with LeBron, with the Cavs, if injuries happen at some point and there's just an opening, you're right there. I think that's got to be the goal, is just to be next. Be the next team, and if that opportunity comes sooner, that's great. If it comes later, you live with that too. Yeah, you don't want to jeopardize any timeline that has you theoretically, uh, you know, taking the mantle, carrying the torch. We're going to the Olympics, and that torch needs to be passed to a to a, 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 a figure. <laughs> I, I, that that analogy lost steam a little bit. I need to step, but not like the torch. Sorry. I need- I need to step in and say something at this point. This just kind of has reminded me of something that that slightly extended break we've had. I've been watching unfold before my eyes and saying, I need to speak about that. I need to talk to the people. Talk to our friends, Jordan. Um, I hate to be this guy, but the rumors and the players that books fans are imagining joining the books this summer need to stop. Stop. They're literally impossible. Yes. (laughs) They're literally impossible. I don't know if anyone understands how the salary cap works. Uh, If anyone understands what Chris Paul, for example, is in line to make this summer. Um, The books have nothing. This is a whole kind of... A lot of people... Matt Moore's spoken about this a lot. Um, Kevin O'Connor wrote about this recently at The Ringer. The thing with the books and their decisions this summer... The books don't really get anything else out of not re-signing, say, a Tony Snell and a Greg Monroe. Either way, they're not really going to have cap space. It doesn't quite work like people just maybe like to think of, oh, well, we just let those guys go and then we get Chris Paul. Renounce their cap holds! (laughs) No. This just, I mean, a lot of these options that are being thrown out aren't really options. Uh, one that seems to be a favor of everyone's. I really don't like it, but that's beside the point because I just don't see how it's going to be possible is Drew Holiday. Drew Holiday's going to get paid more than the books could likely be able to pay. The books aren't going to be 
adding significant free agents this summer, bar maybe bringing back some guys on significant deals who we already know about. So, you know, I don't have the energy right now to make this into a rant, but for anyone who's not fully kind of aware just how how much of a long shot all of those things are, how close to possible it is, the issue isn't just entirely, you know, Chris Paul, he'd have to decide he needs to, he wants to go to Milwaukee, he just needs to find a young star to attach himself to to chase down a championship. There's also the fact that the Bucks can't afford him or even guys in the tier below him and the tier below him as free agents. This is not going to be a big summer of spending on kind of outside the box new faces for the Bucks. Everybody's talking about Chris Paul, but I have, a, I have an addendum to this. What if they want to sign Cliff Paul? And then if you're in the playoffs, hypothetically, and Cliff Paul goes down with an injury, injury that looks particularly bad. Markeith Marcus, who knows? You switch. I mean, if Chris Paul was still with the Clippers, things fall out there. Cliff Paul could emerge from the locker room A-OK and, you know, deliver. Is that what we're getting at here, Jordan? Yes. I like it. The books need some of that. They need to have a player with a built-in backup. From at Manoskull. Are the books going for Yanis at point guard full-time? Question mark. I, my gut instinct and my kind of my first reaction here wants to be just to say no we have that that's done they've moved away from that they've stopped doing that that is true at this moment but if anything can be learned from the way this whole kind of Yanis point Yanis idea experiment has been so far it's that you probably shouldn't second guess what will happen next if they'll decide to ditch it completely if they'll decide to fully commit to it I don't really know, but as of right now, it's not a thing. It's it's a myth. It doesn't exist anymore. Agreed. To keep up with the theme. From at Yanisek1. Should the Bucks draft Donovan Mitchell in the first and a power forward in the second round? Uh, for the second round, I'm not really worried about it being a power forward or anything. I mean, just find your contributor. Find the best guy in the second round. Find... Whoever this year's Malcolm Brogdon is, that's what you want to find. That's your, what your goal has to be. Um, if that's a center, and you'll find a center who can contribute. If it's a point guard, shooting guard, small forward, whatever it is, you just go and you get that person. As for Donovan Mitchell, I like him a lot. I'm gonna I'm gonna write about Donovan Mitchell in the next couple of days. Are you a Donna fan? You could say that, Jordan. I guess. I will say that. There is going to be some intriguing options for the books. I don't think... <laughs> this is very um, 2015 draft, ironically enough, considering it's the same same order in the draft. It's going to be a lot of options. There's probably going to be like seven or eight guys that we go into draft like being like, oh, the books could take this guy, the books could take this guy, and then they'll show up with whoever this year's Tom Maker is and completely surprise us. But I do like Donovan Mitchell. I, as of right now, I wouldn't be opposed to that. The last one. 
Front Metastic. Never mind. It's not the last one, Jordan. I was jumping the gun. We've got a couple left. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> you mean enthusiastic sounds, Jordan. Still going. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what if... What if instead of trying to DM that model with, when he's going to be in LA next, Porzingod said, mill, bo- mill books, smiley faces. What would we have to give up? Remember, this is Phil Jackson. Or in general, what, hap- what happens to the league if Chris Stapps moves? Um, remember that thing I was saying about salaries and everything a minute ago? That factors into this. To get Porzingis? You're giving up the farm, probably, still. Like you're going to keep Giannis. You're probably realistically giving up Ton, right? I mean, if you're going to... If you're going to say, oh, well, we've got Porzingis... No deal. Sorry, no deal. <laughs> to get a player like that, you're giving up a lot. Uh, what would it mean for the league if he was moved? It would mean that the Knicks are a bigger laughing stock than we were all led to believe. And they may never be good again. I think that's what that would mean. Yeah. The mystique of Mr. Phil Jackson. Famous Tetris piece on a bus. Remember that picture? When he was yeah, on the bus? I, I he looked like... Yeah. I've never thought of him as a Tetris piece before, but there you go. Look at it again. He's, he's an uncomfortable Tetris piece, everybody. Uh... Yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> the last one. From a TRW24, Tim Ray. Appropriate question, seeing as Tim is our our shoe aficionado behind the book pass now. Um, He wrote a great review of Matthew Delvedova's signature shoe, the Peak Deli one this week. If you haven't seen it, go check it out on the site, behindthebookpass.com. Tim's question, though, which book is most likely to sign with Big Baller brand and release a $495 signature shoe? Two words. I think this one Michael, is Yeah. Well, Michael Beasley. <laughs> I think this one is easy. <laughs> I think this one is easy. Uh, when I saw this, there were only two words that came to my mind, and they were Michael Beasley. I mean, I think if, it's important. If he, ever use... did, if he ever did have a signature shoe, I would follow Tim's lead and write a review about that. That or Mirza. I mean, it could be a $495 one. I would not be shocked if Michael Beasley ends up as a big baller brand athlete. I mean, his surname does begin with B, which would seem to be a critical importance to this whole venture. Um, his, his personality and I guess his brand message would align with the big baller brand brand message too. I've always been curious with this idea of can't believe we're now talking of our ball in this podcast, but here we go. Let's are. do it. Um, at what point is he going through this whole thing in his brain and he comes up with the name and he decides it needs to have brand on the end of it? Yeah. Name another brand that actually has brand in its name. Well, that's like, uh, what is it? Um, I can't think of the example right now. Son of a gun. Uh, there's some. There's another like big product that has it where they actually say, "I can't." Uh, sorry, everyone. <laughs> uh, uh, anyway, what, what was the question? Oh, to follow uh, 
I, I, I would say Tim's article on the delis, if you haven't read it yet, loyal listeners and readers of Behind the Buck Path slash Wooden Six, uh, it was a peak <laughs> article from Mr. Ray. That, that is the end of my <laughs> sentence. And on that bombshell, that's it for us for this week. We'll be back next week for shooting guards and whatever else we decide to talk about. In the meantime, make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes, follow us on SoundCloud, add us on Stitcher. You can read all of our work at BehindTheBookPass.com and we'll be back with you next week. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you, Jordan. Thank you.